This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Z. Hey everybody, my name is E. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Hi everyone. So, really happy to be here. A little bit nervous. <laughs> and I want to thank Atusa for asking me to be here tonight. I'm so delighted. I'm going to pass around a couple pictures before pictures. Thanks, Nikki. And I just love OA. I'm here to say I never wanted to live any other life besides this one. This is my fourth meeting this week and my third time in this church this week. I'm in, as another woman I know calls it, a variety of anonymi. <laughs> um, but that's skipping ahead. But I will guarantee you that I'm going to skip around a whole bunch. I'll start with my big book. This is my answer. It should be more worn than this. I love it. This revolutionized my life as well. A new pair of glasses. So happy to see that up here. Such great material. Chuck C. Told you I was going to skip around, but I'm remembering. Okay, so I've been around for 33 years. I came in program in 1976. And I'm still here, and I have to tell you, it's hilarious to hear the little podcast introduction. I'm not that old, but when I came in, we didn't have answering machines, people. <laughs> right? We did not have answering machines. Now, wow, it's awesome. And the, the webcasts and such are tremendous value. And, and I think that they're picking up even more. And in some of the other anonymi I go to, I, I hear that some regions around the world have nothing but phone meetings. So I'm really thrilled to just to be here at this particular taping meeting and so 33 years, um, I, I promise I'll go back, but I just, the book, A New Pair of Glasses, reminded me, because I met the author, who's Chuck, Chuck C., and he had, he, he was an alcoholic, as everyone knows, and I guess that's OA, approved literature, where it's got to be, it's on the table, and he was like God. He was this really revered alcoholic. I'm just in a very nostalgic mood, and I love to talk about the past anyway, and I figured out why, because there's no fear in the past. Right, it's already happened. There's fear in the future, but in the past, it all seems so nice and rosy because it's already happened and there's nothing to be afraid of. I think that's a great profundity, don't you? So one day, I've always gone to AA meetings, and I'm not an alcoholic, but my sponsor told me to go. And one day, I went to Rodeo, for anyone who knows, it used to be a Friday night meeting, and Chuck C. was there. I was in my first year of abstinence, and... There's, of course, a long, long line to thank him at the end, and he's just the sweetest man in the world. There was just something about him, even if it wasn't what he said. And I walked up, and I, and it was in my first year, and I said, 
you know, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I just, I can't let go, and I don't know how to surrender. And he just put one finger on my cheek, and he just said, he just let go. You know, and it, it means nothing in the retelling, but it was just one of those things. And I have to tell you, I came here Thursday night to this church um, for an AA meeting, and, and um, there was a man there who was led the meeting. And I'm not going to use any names, but I'm just telling you, he's very, very, very famous. <laughs> and I'm in this emotional mood right now because, like, it doesn't matter. You know, he got up there, and in fact, he's lived a public life. And we, anyone who practically watches TV has seen him and his human foible writ large for the entire world to see. And he got up and he, he talked about this, you know, and he took responsibility for those listening. He talked about the big book and the basics. And he talked about taking responsibility for his own actions. And it just really moved everyone in the room. <laughs> and me, I'm, I'm all weepy and stuff just because I was reborn here. And I just love the program so much. It's crazy. And I'll go back. Let's see. So, yes, I was a normal eater until the age of about 11 or 12. And I really like to say that because it's just a a bright white line, I guess. Normal eating to me meant I stopped when I was full. I knew when I was full. What happened in my disease, of course, not telling you anything you don't know, was that I would eat and eat and eat beyond full, beyond hungry, you know, to the point of sickness, despair, self-hatred. And that happened at around the age of, like I said, 11 or 12. I was studying ballet really seriously at the time, and it was just the perfect escape for me. My brother was taking drugs. I am a very typical product of the 60s, 70s. Damn proud of it. <laughs> and I mean, I went on peace marches in 1969, Vietnam War, candlelight vigil, tally high, very liberal parents. My father and mother were card-carrying members of the Communist Party. I used to live in Orange County, and I say this so many times. I loved saying that when I lived in Orange County. <laughs> and, and, you know, also the beautiful thing about sharing that is I, I keep saying it over the years, and one day a woman came up and said, mine too. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like wherever I go, whatever I do, there's someone who's been through what I need, a spiritual partner to go through with me. So, anyway, why was I talking about that? Just that, oh, yeah, see, so my brother was kind of a typical uh, product of the 60s, 70s. He was three years older, and he started smoking dope at about age 11 or 12. We lived in Santa Monica, Brentwood, and it was the classic gateway drug for him. I mean, it just led to a horrible, horrible life of drug addiction, and he killed himself in 1996. He lived, he could walk from here, you know, to this meeting, and that's why, like, I get so emotional because of everything we have. I've been to an Al-Anon meeting this week, an AA meeting, an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, and a Debtors Anonymous meeting. You know, and I can drive in 10 minutes to all of them. So, skipping around again, I had to make posthumous amends to my brother when he died because I, inside, judged him so harshly. You can walk to the greatest meetings in the world and you're not taking advantage. And actually, he had. He was sober for a long period of time. 
But, you know, this was the beauty of this program. For one thing, I went to a lot of meetings after he died, and I could just wail. You know, this program taught me to grieve. It just, even before I ever thought I'd encounter death, that in, in, ever, you know, it just said, don't hold your feelings back. You know, that's what I was taught here. So grieving came really natural to me, and thank God I could do it in meetings. But I had a way to go to relieve the guilt that I felt for judging him. And that was steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and posthumously nine. So, yeah, so I started eating, and it just, I was off to the races. Uh, studying ballet, pink tights, black leotard, mirrors around the room. Teacher, he literally hit us with the time stick. If we were overweight, would weigh us. Girl, come in front of the room, a scale right there, swear at us. And, I, again, I always like to say that because I have reason to, just him alone, that teacher, and a perfectionist ballet atmosphere, reason to go into food. One reason I went into the whole brother thing was that he was doing the drugs and I was the goody two-shoe. Oh, I wasn't going to do that. But I had the same lock on life, the same degree of fear and need to control everything I think that he did. But I retreated to the food, and it was a real comfort, especially with the ballet, but it it was also self-sabotage, all of this stuff. But back to that, you know, any reasonable person could conclude that, well, with a crazy atmosphere like that and a teacher like that, you'd overeat too. And it had nothing to do with this ballet teacher, you know. And over the years, of course, we've seen it all in these rooms, people who are poor, rich, great families, boring families, you know, all of this stuff. And we're all just here because we're humans and we have this thing. I'm going to skip ahead. I was talking to someone before the meeting and saying that I think the great human challenge, well, maybe there's two. That's the third step, (laughs) turn my will and my life over to God and to really accept another human being for exactly who they are. And this guy Thursday night was talking about it. And you know how sometimes, like my friend says, You'll hear something for 10 years in a row, and suddenly it sinks from your head to your gut. So he was talking about um, how he had been dating this woman for many years, and um, he said to her, Baby, you're my ideal of femininity, baby. (laughs) And he said, and you know, he said, and he's been married to the finest woman, you know, and he said, she was it. He said, if you would just not do that one thing. <laughs> it just hit me. And if you would just do this one thing. And I, it just hit me. And, you know, I, 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 I can't remember if he talked about it, but it, it drew me over to uh, the fifth chapter in the big book about how we want to control everything and control everyone. And when I walked in at age uh, 18, having binged my guts out, I'd been on pre-digested liquid protein, Anyone heard of it? Thank you. You're old enough. And it was basically a fast. You ate four tablespoons of bile <laughs> four times a day and otherwise, otherwise didn't eat. I'd done that one. You know, I did Dr. Acton the first time around in the 70s and was sticking those little tabs in my urine to see if I was in ketosis or whatever it is. And Yeah. And so <laughs> at Weight Watchers, I still have my card. I went right here on Wilshire Boulevard. 
So I walked in and I read this part that talks about forever trying to control everyone. And, you know, goody-two-shoe little girls don't want to control anyone. And they're not self-censored. I didn't relate to any of this stuff. And, um, you know, people say today, okay, here I am on the soapbox, that thank God we have the OA literature now, you know, because this is written for overeaters and we can really understand now. Well, I don't use any of the OA books. (laughs) I love being a rebel. I don't let my sponsees use them. And it took me, God knows, at least four years to understand any of what this book was talking about. Um, you know, but that's the deal. That's just the deal. You know, I'm always looking for an easier, softer way. So do we, I don't like to think about rewriting the literature to, so that I can understand, that I can have a better idea. Um, the funny thing is, too, being a uh, child of hippies and the flower power generation, you know, uh, it shocks me that I sound more dogmatic than practically anyone I know. But there's one answer, and it's in this book, and it hasn't been rewritten yet. (laughs) So that's where I stand on that stuff. But you see, this is it. It's like today I get to read it and go, that's exactly right. Unless you're doing kind of what I want you to do, I'm full of fear, and I start to try to control you know, and it's the opposite of acceptance. And so I um, really, <sighs> the compulsive overeating just continued to get worse and worse and worse as I aged, uh, as I grew up. I uh, did a lot of real classic geographics, too. I quit ballet, and I figured that an all-American uh, sort of college life, college would be the answer, and getting far away from my parents would be the answer. So I moved 3,000 miles away to college in New York, and my dad used to send me Cadbury chocolate bars, which back then, 1975 this was, were a lot bigger than they are now. Not that I'm looking, no. Um, <laughs> and so he'd mail me like two of these. I had, you know, it's funny, it's ironic because I used to steal his. He always had two by the bed. And there was always, usually it was like one and one half eaten. And so when I would go on my bench, I would eat them both and then have to replace them. And then, you know, one, of course, I'd have to eat halfway down. And, you know, my thing with all, with, with my thing, my disease was I was always on a diet. And I really, truly believe that if I just got thin, several things would happen. One, mainly, I'd be so happy that I would never want to eat again. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. And, um, you know, just I used to think it was just a phase. I mean, I think we all do. How many messages? They say we get hit with like 45,000 advertising messages a day. And I bet 38,000 of them are diet, you know, the new diet. And it tells you over and over again, you can control, you can control. you. And there's a part in the big book that says the world out there aids and abets our disease in telling us that we can control this, you know. So when I got here, there was just no way I was going to admit powerlessness let alone turn my will and my life over to a God that I was bound and determined to disprove. So the dieting for me was always wake up, eat cottage cheese and half a grapefruit, which was the diet food that came out of the 50s, I think. Here's a little uh, nostalgia thing, too. Do you remember the diet place? Like anyone probably under 40 might not know, but if you're you, a diet plate was on every menu, and it consisted of a hamburger without the bun, a scoop of cottage cheese, a pineapple ring, and a maraschino cherry <laughs> on lettuce. 
And, of course, since you were starving yourself, you ate all of it and you were happy to, you know. And cottage cheese and grapefruit or hard-boiled egg and grapefruit was the standard diet breakfast, you know. And, okay, I'm going to, okay, so thanks to this program, if I don't eat tomorrow, I don't, I didn't count the days before I came here, but I celebrated 28 years of abstinence in February. So in 28 years, I've never had either of those meals. But, so that was the thing. Wake up, bound and determined, one more time, this is the beginning of the end of fat. And the day would go on, and really usually very early on into the morning, my head would start to say, would start to obsess about what I would eat if I could. And it, it just turned into this fight, this exhausting fight. I will, I won't. I, all the reasons I should, all the reasons I shouldn't. And very often for me, by about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd be so exhausted and overcome by the addiction and the obsession that I would decide to eat. And I say, I love to say that was always a two-part decision because it was first, F it, I'm going to eat, and part two, doesn't matter because I'm going to start again tomorrow anyway. Right? So, you know, I just have this image of a People magazine with the latest diet and chocolate ice cream stains on it. Because that's what you do. You go to the market and buy the binge food, read about the next diet while you're eating, and reading about the person that you wanted to be, Kelsey Kirkland, the great ballerina. Over and over and over like that. Um, and getting into bed that night, having eaten eight candy bars, pint of ice cream, half a pizza, switching from salt to sugar, and resolving and, and feeling that I will never do that again. So disgusted physically. When it becomes a physical thing, it's beyond mental. You know, and then usually because I'd eaten so much that for four days after that, I didn't crave anything. But then the stuff's cleaned out of your system. And then your mind starts again, the obsession. So that was what it was always like. And, God, I used to say for years that my disease was characterized by that fight. If there was one word to characterize compulsive overeating, it was fighting. So I got here, and again, everyone said, you know, you have to give up the fight and all this stuff, and it just didn't work. <laughs> I came to OA, and, uh, well, what immediately I saw were kind of two main things. One, God. Heard God the first thing right away, and I was instantly turned off. I didn't like the prayers. I didn't like the hugging, but on the other hand, I saw something I'd never seen or read about, and that was people who lost their weight and kept it off. And to cap that, they lost the obsession. And I just thought, that would never happen to me, but that would never happen to me. But, you know, I think also, you know, I was only 18, but I feel like I had lived a lifetime of pain enough by that time, and my fear was so high that I got here and I just saw the love. You know, even God-coded, I could take it. And, of course, because they make it so easy on us in this program, it says you don't have to pay, you don't have to believe, you don't have to anything. Just come and sit. You know, I had these extreme demands on myself. I wasn't just going to be a ballerina in the corps de ballet. I had to be the best, you know, and I had to be the one, the one in the white tutu, you know. 
and um, it's taken a lifetime, <laughs> uh, not a lifetime, but, you know, just to be one of, to learn to be happy and content being one of instead of the one. <laughs> so, like I say, even though I was really mm, rejected a lot of what I first saw here, I never stopped coming back, and that was 1981. Uh, I was going to say something, and I, I forgot it. But anyway, yeah, so those were the days. So, But it took me about four or five years to get abstinent. And I would drive to meetings, binging my guts out, do the meeting, and drive home and finish it off. I once ate a Baby Ruth candy bar in the, in the bathroom of a meeting at a woman's home. You know, you name it. And what happened was I just kept coming back. And one Friday night, I had a binge, and... Another thing I like to say a lot is that it was probably the mildest, meekest binge, one of them, that I'd ever had. So if you can't abstain and you're waiting for the big mama, you know, it it may not necessarily be that. But something happened inside of me. Part of what happened was pure vanity, which I love saying. I had lost some weight at that point in programs and had some measure of control where I was having one binge a month. And I thought, this is it. See, I knew I was normal. Normal, you know, I have one binge, I'm not gaining weight, I get it out of my system and life goes on. Uh, I really am not as sick as these people. I don't have a lifetime disease. And then what happened was the once a month turned into daily in a short period of time. And it was daily that ended up in that Friday night and I got really, really afraid, mostly of gaining all my weight back. And I love that because it's like I'm so petty. So I went to a meeting the next day, and it was close to here, and it was about 150 people every Saturday morning. I'm going to cry again. (laughs) And it was called the Maintainer's Meeting. Anyone? Flicker of recognition. It was a killer meeting. I don't know if this really had anything to do with it, but back in the day, we used to actually have a lot of AA speakers even at our OA meeting because people considered we were like new. Our program was new. So, in fact, don't tell anyone, but I'm lining up the workshops for the birthday in January and I'm going to try to get an AA speaker. That's like 45,000 years of sobriety. He'll probably say no because last time I asked him, he said, I think he's your sponsor, he said, I don't have anything to tell those people. <laughs> anyway, 30 years, 50 years. Oh, I'm going to cry again. And <laughs> so this was this killer Saturday meeting. So what happened was that fear and that vanity motivated me, you know, and I learned that fear can be my best friend. And I went to this meeting, and I did something very different differently than I had done in those four to five years in OA before, and that was to ask someone to sponsor me who intimidated and scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and it's funny, but see, that's it, you know. It's like I wanted just to be comfortable. So I would get people who didn't intimidate me. And I guess, again, the fear, in a way, gave me that courage. And I went up to one of those people that you see shining all over the place and really into the program, and I asked her to sponsor me, and she said no, but she directed me to someone I liked even less. <laughs> and that was the beginning. You know, one day at a time, I hope I never have to eat again. But this woman was deadly serious, 
And that's the thing, is that I've always considered this a life and death disease, and I did not need my brother's suicide to teach me that. And she was an AA as well as OA. And so here was her plan. Four pages out of the big book or the 12 and 12 a night, ton of meetings, service commitment, and one AA meeting a week. So I've gone for the last 28 years, 29 years, not once a week, trust me, but certainly for the first, like, year and a half or so. And, you know, I've always described myself as crazy or maniac in those that first year because I went to seven to nine meetings a week. But um, I'm not going to do that this time. It's like I'm so grateful. I mean, they were great. And we, I had a path that I ran with, you know. God, I used to go to a couple of AA meetings back then and, Oh, I love this nostalgia stuff, you guys. The meetings, of course, this was already 81, but still at that time, a lot of meetings were two hours long. There was a 15-minute break, so you really had to pull your covers. And the qualifier or the person who led the meeting shared usually for 45 minutes. And we all went out to coffee afterwards. I mean, where did, when, where did we have that time? You know, I think it's because we didn't have phone machines. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, society's changed, traffic's changed, all of this stuff. So it was great. So, um, yeah, I just got a really serious program, and my sponsor said, you either do these things or we don't work together, you know. And um, it, it was just very different. My sponsor in the beginning was not my best friend was not someone that I, she used to say to me if I would say the same story over and over again, she said, drop it, I've heard this one already. It was very tough love, and I'm very, very grateful, you know, because I found the people to whine to. You know, I found the ones who I could say it over and over and over again. You know, those were my other buddies. But she was serious with me. And, you know, at this point in the story, it's like, okay, now talk about the remaining 27 years. Well, where do I go? I will say this, that the first, say, year and a half or so, or year, was, I have to say this, after that Saturday morning when I got her, it was like the obsession was lifted. That craving that I thought would never, ever be lifted was lifted. And it was, I just like to say, it was plucked out of me, you know, and I guess I had always thought that if I work hard enough or I do the right thing, I'll shove it away from me. And remember, too, in those all those diet books, they used to say, here's a tool. After you're done, push yourself away from the table. You know, and it's funny, but it's also heartbreaking. You know, drink water. You know, like, if water, I wouldn't be here 33 years later, you know. But, you know, it was still hard that first year, and there was so much fear, especially because I had had so many what I call, like, false starts in a way. And I remember vividly saying to my sponsor, I'm going to do everything you're telling me, but I'm really afraid. And I was afraid to get my hopes up. I was afraid to disappoint her. I was afraid, you know, and she, she basically said, shut up. You're a newcomer. Act like one. And we were told you have to sit in the first three rows. The, the recovery doesn't take place after the first three rows. And, you know, and she just kept saying, basically, I don't care if you're afraid. You know, just do these things. And that's basically, I think, what happened. And so I just did those. We do these things, you know, to the best or worst of our ability. And, and then, you know, things change and things were removed. So, you know, a couple of the things that really stick out for me in, in my journey over the years is that A, the obsession was removed. Thank you, God, it still is. I love to eat. 
don't don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I just because of my body and age and stuff, I don't do breakfast, but I do coffee. And let me just tell you that even when the coffee starts to go down in the cup, I start to get depressed. You know, <laughs> and it's you know with the same with every meal. But it's not that horrible drive. In fact, it's no drive at all. The meal's over, and sometimes I think as I'm taking the last few bites. How how am I going to stop? Like dinner's over, you know. But again, it's not that. It's just a freaking miracle. So let's see. Oh yeah, learning to be average. That was a huge deal here, with all those ballet thoughts and this and that. Um, having to be the best. You know, I just remember in the early years, I went to I, I went back to college so I could get just my undergraduate degree, and I made a pact with myself and my sponsor that I would just get C's. I graduated on the dean's list, you know. And it's because whenever I, like, start to reach for that stuff out there, I'd be so full of fear and everything, you know. And I just would keep myself in those those beautiful pages that say, you know, we're one among many. And it was it became about doing service, you know. It's fun. And this meeting I went to this morning was all about higher power. And, you know, I love this. It's not a controversy, but, you know, you've got those who say, this program, it's not the tools, honey. You know, it's the step. And this program, you know, it's not the meeting, it's God. And here's my story. I, I believe that it's about having a relationship with a higher power. You know, and this book tells us that the whole purpose of it is to help you have a spiritual awakening so you can have a personality change. But I didn't say that to you from my gut. Here's what I say from my gut. It was the meetings and the people that changed my life. And if you want to call that God, then that's great, you know. But I feel God when I call that person who's there. And, of course, like everyone, we've all been through stuff. And when I said that just then, it reminded me of two things. One of the most harrowing things that I was able to abstain through here was four months after I got, I had a lifelong dream of getting married. And in 1971, I got married, and four months later, my husband was diagnosed with bladder cancer. It's seven years now, and he is O-O-T-W, out of the woods. (laughs) And I say that with, I mean, the doctors, the finest, one of the finest bladder cancer surgeons told us that his chance of recurrence is under 5%. But you can imagine. <laughs> and, man, it's just like, you know what I told him, because I wanted to talk about service. He had never been one of those hot people who like hospitals. And I had worked in hospitals. But beyond that, I said, honey, oh, and he was there a week. They removed his bladder. <sighs> and I said, every tech and nurse that walks into this room, you get their name and you say, how's your day going? Who's going to know to do that kind of thing? You know, to get out of yourself and make it about them. And it was funny. He caught on quickly because one day in the hospital, he 12-stepped one of the nurses. He's not in the program. Just talked to my wife. And so, you know, here I, I learned to turn every idea I had on its head. Because we have to give up all our old ideas, you know. And another thing I thought of um is that one of my dearest, dearest friends in program, Doreen, and she has, um, let's see, I'm 28, she has about 30 years of abstinence. And I once called her going through another harrowing thing, and she was going through, she was starting her labor pains for her second child, and she stayed on the phone with me. 
<laughs> so to me, that you know, that's where I see and I experience God. And Doreen reminded me that I want to share the kind of abstinence that I see around me. Abstinence today and yesterday, and I hope tomorrow, is the most important thing in my life without exception. That used to be a little slogan on, like, all of our literature. And also all of the pamphlets on the very top that said, before you take that first bite, call. And it was all about not taking that first bite. You know, that's something about the AA meetings I went to, that these guys would go and share and say, I lost my home, I lost my wife, I lost my job, I lost my car, but I didn't drink today. You know, and the whole room would explode into applause. That was what was indoctrinated into me. And it was such a relief because I thought I had to go out and be the best ballerina and do this and do that. And finally, because I hit bottom, which is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life, my ears opened up and I was willing to believe that. And my Doreen and my sponsor said, all you have to do today is eat three abstinent meals, hit the bed abstinent, and you've had a fantastic day. And, you know, Doreen and I still talk about that as a, as the way, as the answer. Um, so I just wanted to say that, so she has 30 years. My sponsor, we, we kind of sponsor each other, but then I have this other sponsor. I, I won't name her, but she has, gosh, she must have 35 now. And she's been maintaining a 250-pound weight loss for 35 years. You know, I mean... Oh, by the way, I'm maintaining about a 45-pound weight loss. And there are many, many people like this that I can't think of right now. <laughs> Doreen's, one of Doreen's early sponsors, Linda, has, I think, 38, you know. And, in fact, I'm going to talk about the birthday again. I, I'm putting together a workshop with this Linda woman who has about 38 or 40, Doreen, and then someone Doreen sponsors. So it's going to be three generations of sponsorship there. So um, that's, look, it's time. Okay. Um, you know, I think I basically said all I can think of. And thank you so much for having me out tonight. That's it.